This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We are in the middle of chapter 18, page 321, third paragraph from the bottom, the second paragraph from the bottom. So he's describing the second level of love, which comes from a sense of distance, when the soul feels that we're distanced from Hashem, and therefore we yearn. We're yearning for something. We're like we're thirsty, we're hungry. When you don't have food, when you don't have something to drink, that's when you're thirsty and that's when you're hungry. When, you're, when you have it, then you enjoy it, but it, you don't have that hunger. But this love is a love where the soul yearns and desires godliness. Wants to be close precisely because it's far, because it feels disconnected. And this uh, love is hidden, is innate, inherent in every single Jew. And that's why we are filled with guilt, especially Jews. That's our middle name is called guilt. Because it comes from a good place, because deep down we have that connection. And when we do anything that disconnects us, we may feel good for the moment, but we don't, it doesn't sit well, it doesn't sit right. And some level we're not happy. A Jew will never sin wholeheartedly. The moment he does it, he already regrets it on some level. He's not happy, he doesn't feel good. He can't feel good because you feel you're disconnected. The question is, if that's the case, then how is it that we can sin in the first place? Since we see that the soul is active, it's a live wire within us, and that's why we respond, we feel guilty, it doesn't feel right. So if that's the case, why doesn't it force us to do the right thing? How is it possible that a Jew should sin in the first place? If we have this love, so that's where we left off. Second paragraph on the bottom of page 321. However, because it is latent and concealed in a state of exile in the body, it is possible for the klipa to dominate it. Exactly. It is covered up, and it's hidden on its own right, and it's covered up, and it's in exile in the ego. So therefore, we're not in touch with it. We're not... We don't connect with it. We don't, we're not conscious of it. It's, it's very vague, fuzzy, nebulous. And that's why the klipa can dominate, could control, could imprison it. This is the spirit of folly which causes a man to sin. The spirit of folly cloaks this hidden love, ahava, mesuter, so that one loses the sensitivity to realize that through sinning he is jeopardizing his attachment to Hashem. As the Baal said, that the word in Hebrew for sin is chet. Chet is spelled ches, tes, aleph. But aleph is silent. Aleph is not pronounced. 
Because what does the Aleph represent? One. Aleph represents one. It represents Hashem. So the Aleph is present. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist. So even when we're sinning, the Aleph, the divine spark, is creating us, is animating us, is located at the center of our being. But the Aleph is silent. Were we to feel the Aleph and feel Hashem's presence and feel the reality of the divine, we couldn't sin. But it's only when the Aleph is silent, therefore, we can sin. And that's what the rabbis say, a person doesn't sin unless he has a, a sense of folly. The simple meaning is that when a person wants to sin, you do foolish things. We, do, we see very smart people do very foolish things. You know, later when they're caught, they look back. How could someone so smart do something so foolish? But what the rabbis mean in the deepest sense is the fact that I sin could only come because of a sense of folly. How can I sin? How is it possible for a person to sin? It's only because you lose touch. You're not sensitive. You don't realize how deep your feelings are for godliness. How profound your feelings are. And because you're not in touch with it, that's why you can act in a way that contradiction, that's contradictory to how you really feel. And that's, a, that's foolish. To act in a way that's contrary to the way I truly feel, that's silly. To live a life that's not true to myself. To live a life where I tear myself apart, where I'm like in conflict. It's like a double life, like leading a double life. You have an inner life, a secret life, and then you have your outer life. So to live a life where a double life where you're not inside like outside, you're not outside like inside, it's foolish, it's silly. It's actually very harmful. It leads to illness, it leads to unhappiness. You know, doctors know now, and this was written in the Zohar many years, thousands of years, Kabbalah, that illness is just a symptom of, of, uh, of your emotions, of how you're feeling. And sometimes it takes illness a long time to develop, but it's, it's a symptom of spiritual illness. So when a person leads a life that clashes, inside you're clashing with yourself, you're doing harm to yourself, you're living in a way that goes contrary to your core nature, to your central nature, besides being foolish and silly, it's also, it could be deadly, it could be very harmful. When a person it lives a life, it's wholesome. When you're whole inside, when you're smiling inside, then you're smiling outside. But if inside you're not smiling, that's why, that's why Jews are the angriest people in the face of the world. Because when their outside life clashes with their inner life, there's so much tension, so much anger, so much pent-up, energy and, and, and dissonance that, that creates a tremendous rage and anger and, and uh, unsettledness. And you're unsettled inside and you're unsettled on the outside. So this is because the inner, the spark, the godly soul, this love is hidden, is buried, is concealed, is trapped, it's, 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 it's imprisoned. So therefore, we don't feel it. We're not sensitive to our godly feelings. Could you imagine if we were sensitive to our godly feelings? This world would be a paradise. 
we lived in a way, if we acted in a way, if we spoke in a way, if we thought in a way that's consistent, who we really are deep down, we, 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 we give us so much nachas, we have so much nachas in ourselves. Versus when we live a life which is full of conflict and contradiction, and, and it's a farce, it's false. It just, it grates. It grates on our nerves. It creates tension. It just, that's why we explode. We're not happy. We're not, we're not settled. Because, we, because it's like, it's like the, the earth shifting plates. Because we're like in two different places. We're not, we don't have our act together. So, so therefore, what's the challenge for us? Continue, therefore. Therefore, a man's service to his maker consists of strengthening himself and prevailing over the klipa in all its manifestations. So we got to overcome. We got to realize the klipa is the enemy. This shell the, 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 this, that's trapping us, that's entrapping us, this is our enemy. So we got to strengthen ourselves and we have, we have to overcome this shell that distorts, this lens that distorts everything. Everything becomes twisted and everything as a result of the klipa. It's not good. Nothing good comes out of it. Whatever comes out of this clip of this distorted view, and this, it just distorts our feelings, distorts our reality, distorts our truth. So we've got to fight it. It's not my friend. It's pulling me. It's pulling me in a direction. And, and it's like the force of gravity. It, it's a very powerful. Junk food, junk lifestyle, it's a very attractive. But it's not my friend. It's clip, it's distortion. I have to fight it. How do I fight it? That is, first, to expel it completely from the body so that it has absolutely no dominion over him. Okay, so the first thing is you can't let it have any say in how you run your life. Once you establish, once you realize that it's your enemy, it's not your friend, so therefore I'm not taking any advice from you. (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) I'm not investing in anything you tell me to invest. Whatever you tell me, I'm going to do this the opposite. So you tell me to behave this way, I'm going to run the other way. You tell me to think this way, I'm out of here. I'm going to think the exact opposite. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to think anything that goes against the Jewish law, that goes against the Torah. Anything that's not divine. I'm only going to think in a kosher way, speak in a kosher way, and act in a kosher way. So that's number one. Action. I'm not listening to you. I'm kicking you out. You're fired. And it's not a joke. You're fired. You're out. See the door out, exit. Yeah, you're not. You know, I'm not longer. I'm no longer taking any dictates from you. I'm no longer listening to you. So that's number one. You have to get rid of it. You have to get rid of it at least when it comes to the expressions, the actions, the thoughts, the speech, which is what we could control. We could expel it. We could choice choose. Without, we have a choice. It's difficult, more difficult to deal with the inner, but with the behavior. That, I'm in charge, I'm in control. I choose to listen to you, I choose not to listen to you. I hear what you're saying, and the answer is you're fired. So that's number one. That's the first thing. That has to go. Thought, speech, and action. All my 248 limbs. I am not going to give in to my klipa, to my shell. I'm going to listen to Hashem, listen to my neshama, listen to the code of Jewish law. Expelling it from the faculties of thought, speech, and action that are in the brain, the tongue, and the 248 organs. Expelling the klipa means ensuring that one's brain will harbor no thoughts that are contrary to Hashem's will. That one's tongue will speak no evil words, and that one's 248 
organs will commit no evil act. After that, he will also be able to bring out the captive from prison with a strong hand. So now you'll be able to create a prison escape. Now you'll help the prisoner escape. Once you've broken the control, and once you assume control over your behavior and over your body, then that will pave the way. Now you can help the prisoner, this love for Hashem, you can allow it to escape and allow it to emerge to your consciousness. Then you'll recover that sensitivity, that ability to feel and experience that love, that yearning, that hunger, that thirst, that desire, which is always there. On the contrary, the more imprisoned you were, the hungrier it got. <laughs> the more intense was the hunger. The more you starved, the more the godly soul is starved, the hungrier it gets. But it was so covered up that you couldn't, you didn't feel it, you didn't sense it. The moment you remove the, uh, the, sh- the uh, shackles, the moment you free yourself on a beha- behavioral level, externally, then you'll allow suddenly these feelings will be free to emerge and you'll start feeling again and start sensing this hunger and this yearning and this desire to connect and to cleave and to, con- to connect with godliness. Once one has anchored the cleaver by steadfastly turning away from evil, not thinking, speaking, or doing those things that are contrary to Hashem's will, he is then able to uncover the love that is latent within him so that it will permeate his positive thoughts, words, and deeds. His mind will thus ponder upon Hashem's greatness, and his heart will then actively feel love for Hashem. In turn, this love will result in his enhanced fulfillment of the Torah and its mitzvah. That is, he will be strong and his heart courageous among the valiant, so that the hidden love will become abundantly revealed in all the powers of the soul's components in his body. Once the love emerges, then it will permeate all of your actions. There's a difference when you do something coldly and mechanically and technically or when you do it passionately. There's a difference if you speak and you put everyone to sleep or you're, you're passionate and you're excited and you're full of enthusiasm and you just are so alive and so awake. You're waking everyone around you. So the words are different. Words that have love, have feelings, the words are different. The words are on a different level. The actions are different. The actions are on a different level. The thought, everything, everything about you comes alive. Every part of you comes alive. So when you release and unleash this love and allow it to emerge, it will affect the actions. The actions will be in a different level be filled with enthusiasm, with joy, with passion, with, with love, with excitement, with life, with vitality. Right. Yes, Barry. So we're talking about the godly soul. Yeah, the love of the godly soul. This innate love of the godly soul. Yeah, but we, we're referring to it as he. He will be strong. I mean, somehow... I... Oh, the person. We're talking about the person. Yeah, but we're talking about the godly soul. No, no, we're talking about the person. The person is in between. The person is the godly soul and the clip are fighting over the person. So the person will then be able, once the person decides and chooses, to follow the godly soul. And he behaves according to the godly soul. And he expels the clipper. 
then that will allow for the prisoner, which is the godly soul, allow the, allow the godly soul to emerge within the person, to, to manifest itself in the person. Otherwise it's there, but it's trapped. Mm-hmm. Can't do anything. It has no power. It's powerless. It's an exile. If it's an exile, it's powerless. Mm-hmm. You know, the president is an exile. He's powerless. He can't do anything. So he can be the boss and he's the godly soul, but he's king, but he's in, he's in prison. He's powerless. We have a godly soul, but it's completely powerless within us. It has zero influence, zero effect, zero impact. The only effect and impact that it had is that it makes us feel guilty. So we know that it's there. We know that it's alive. It's indestructible. You can't destroy the godly soul. So where's the godly soul fighting? The no, it's, oh, it's, fighting, it's fighting the clipper, the ego. Uh-huh. You have three souls. You have the nefesh you have the godly soul, and you have the person. And that's what he says, that the person, that's what he's going to say now, and you'll continue reading, is that the person is the mind. You know, the person is, the person itself is the grounds where the struggle plays out. Mm-hmm. The godly soul and the animal soul are fighting, and the, uh, the grounds, the battleground, is the person himself. What is the person himself? That's his mind. That's called the, the intellectual soul. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's going to say, that it starts with the mind. That, on page, the middle of page 323, mainly. That is mainly in the mind and in faculty of thought in the brain. The mind serves to reveal this love, which then manifests throughout the rest of the person's organs. Because the mind, that's the person. The person is the mind. And you're aware, and you realize that you have two forces within you, and you have the godly soul, and you have the animal soul, the ego soul, and the natural soul, and you have to decide, and you have to choose. You have to make a choice. So you are the, the battleground, which is the intellect, and you have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. So once you make a choice, and you choose to obey, to expel the animal soul, the klipa, and to listen to the godly soul, and you start behaving consistently and accordingly, and your behavior is consistent with your godly soul, then that will allow you to help the godly soul emerge and surface, beginning with your mind. By meditating and reflecting, and the deeper you understand, and the more you think about it, and the deeper you concentrate and you focus and you get into it, then the more it will permeate every part of you because you are the mind and it's the mind when you understand something you understand it very well and you concentrate and focus on it then it affects your emotions and ultimately it affects your behavior mm-hmm. that it, it, it animates your behavior it instills your behavior with a sense of purpose a sense of direction a sense of understanding so it all begins with the mind with the idea with the, under, with the comprehension with the Chabad so that corresponding to its intellect and understanding the mind will constantly think and contemplate on God on and the create. And that's the key, constantly. Because like we learned earlier in the Tanya, in the first part, chapter 3, if you stop thinking about it, out of mind, out of sight, out of sight, out of mind, you stop thinking about it, you become mindless, it disappears very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that you're constantly thinking about it. It's like, in order to be intimate, you have to constantly, you have to be focused 100%. You can't be 99 by 9%. So to be able to be, you have to be focused. 
You have to be constantly engaged, involved, fully engaged. That means your mind has to be fully engaged. You have to constantly be thinking about it, focusing, concentrating on the greatness of Hashem. It's not just passing through, fly by night, I'll think about it for a minute and a half, and then I'm done. No, constantly thinking about it. It's something you're constantly thinking about, reflecting on, aware of, concentrating, focusing on. And it's that constancy and that intense focus with the mind, your awareness, constantly focus. This will lead to the love and then it will permeate everything else. What are you thinking about? How he, Hashem, is the fountainhead of life in general and of the life of his own soul in particular. What does a person want in life? You want life, period. What are you looking for in life? You're looking for energy, for life, excitement, thrill. So there's only one address. That's the source of life. You're plugged into the source of life. You're plugged into Hashem. Then you'll have life. You're looking for passion. You're looking for excitement. Run to the Chabad house. Run to Shul. That's where you're going to find all the life in the world you need. You're not going to find it in Las Vegas. That's, that's artificial. It's make-believe. Disney World. You want reality, real life. Reality. You've got to connect to the source of life. The more connected you are, the more alive you are. There's a sparkle, there's a life, there's a passion, there's a vibrancy. There's a... You look into the eyes of a chassid, you see life. There's a sparkle, there's a life, there's a purity, an innocence, a vitality, a joy, a passion. While you look in the eyes of those who are running elsewhere, jaded, dead, been there, seen it all, no passion, no excitement, ennui. Consequently, he yearned and desired to be attached to him and near to him with an innate yearning. But the more you understand how Hashem is a source of life, that will lead to a love and to a yearning and to a hunger and to a desire. That, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be anywhere else. This is it. This is, this, is, this is the richness. This is the wealth. This is where it's at. I want to plug in. I want to connect. Like that of a child who yearns to be constantly near his father, and like fire, which by its very nature always rises upwards to its source. A son who is not next to his father. And when he thinks about his father, he wants to be home. He wants to be with his parents. Or fire, that's separate from its source. It's an independent and it yearns. It jumps up. It leaps forward because it leaps upwards because it wants to connect to its source. It wants to be absorbed in its source. So that when we realize, since we, there's a sense of I, that's the, that's the rational soul, that's the person, it's in the center, that's the battlefield. So since we, have, we are independent and we are disconnected from Hashem, but when we contemplate and reflect that Hashem is the source of life, and the deeper we understand this, the more we'll have a hunger and a desire and a yearning to connect to be with our source, to become one with our source, to connect with Hashem. And the more he continues to sit his mind on this yearning, the more will this yearning become correspondingly stronger and will also extend to his mouth 
and to all his organs, so that he will occupy himself with the Torah and the commandments in order to really be thereby to Hashem. For the Torah and the Holy One, blessed be he, are entirely one. This love will thus affect his brain, mouth, and other bodily organs, motivating them to study Torah and to perform the commandments with a greater degree of love. What's the only way to connect with Hashem? By studying His Torah and by doing mitzvot. So the more you think about how Hashem is the source of life, and the deeper you go into it, and the more you understand it, you recognize it, and you internalize it, and focus and concentrate on it, the more you'll realize, and the more you'll desire to connect with Hashem by studying His Torah, the more Torah you want to, you'll, like you'll thirstily drink it all in, you'll drink in more Torah, and you can't get enough of Torah, and you can't get enough of mitzvot, and the more the better, and you do it enthusiastically, and joyfully, and passionately. So it all depends on your Chabad, it all depends on the level of your understanding. So that's the beginning of the revelation of the soul. The soul escapes prison. How does the soul escape prison? So firstly, you have to lay the groundwork to allow the soul to escape prison. How do you allow the soul to escape prison? If you're sinning and you're behaving in a way that's contradictory and contrary to the soul, you can't. You're just imprisoning it. Every time you do something wrong, you're disconnecting even more. You're just laying it on thick. You're adding another, another layer. You're just handcuffing the soul. But the moment you lay the groundwork for the, for the breakout, you have to lay out the groundwork. You have to remove all the obstacles. How do you remove all the obstacles? You have to stop behaving in a way that's contrary to the soul. You have to act godly, think Jewish, speak Jewish, and act Jewish. Once you've laid the groundwork, you've removed all the obstacles, now you can release the prisoner. Now you can help the prisoner escape. Beginning by thinking, contemplating, Understanding, and the deeper you understand, the more you focus, the more you concentrate it, and constantly thinking about it, the more your feelings will develop a feeling and a love and a hunger and a yearning for Hashem, and that will lead to action. In other words, even though you started out with action, but this will lead to a, a, a live action. Your behavior will be will be alive with love and with uh, it'll be a different type of action. It's not the same action. When you force yourself to do the right thing or when you do it when it's suffused, infused with a love for Hashem. From this greatly manifest burning of this love, it is written, my soul turns like a person who thirsts for water and doesn't yet have any pleasure. This is the love of yearning. Not the love of pleasure that we learned about in the first half, of a letter, because a love of pleasure means when you already have it, so you feel pleasure. But when you're lacking, then you feel yearning. It's a different type of love. So because we don't have it, we don't have that closeness, because we're disconnected, we're distant. It's like the son is yearning for his parent, is yearning for his father. Want to be reunited. Precisely because he's not close. When you're standing next to your father, you don't yearn for your father, he's right there. You enjoy his presence. You, you, you just enjoy it. But, it's a, but this love is when there's, you're distant. 
So this is a thirst. You experience a thirst for Hashem. Tzama nafshi, my soul thirsts for Hashem. Tzama nafshi, this is the song that the Rebbe would sing. Psalm 63, my soul yearns for you. My flesh yearns for you. Why? Because I'm in a desert. A dry, parched desert where there's no water. So that's why I yearn. Because there's no water, that's why I yearn for, for Hashem. So, so to I'm, we're in a spiritual desert. So because we don't sense godliness, and because godliness is not tangible and palpable for us, it's something that's remote, abstract, it's distant, we struggle with it, therefore we're like in a part, spiritually parched desert. And that's why the more we think about Hashem, the more we realize that Hashem is the source of life, the more hungry we feel, the more yearning we feel. It awakens a, a hunger and a thirst for Hashem. This level of love for Hashem is likened to a state of thirst. At this stage, the individual seeking to cleave to Hashem does not experience any delight, for he has yet to cleave to Him. All he feels is the pangs of thirst. In the previously described level of love, Havabeta Anugam, the individual has already quenched his thirst, so to speak. His love for Hashem has been realized, and he is now actively cleaving to Him. Also concerning this yearning and this love concealed within us, we pray to Hashem to help us bring it out from imprisonment. It is indeed true that this lesser degree of love is attainable by man and need not be granted as a gift from above. It is already possessed by every Jew, and he need not but reveal it through his spiritual services. Nevertheless, we beseech Hashem that He help us reveal this love and liberate it from its concealment. There's a few things that we need in order to reveal <coughs> this, uh, this natural love. We learned earlier in letter number four that how do we reveal this love? By giving tzedakah, by being charitable, by being generous and kind, and by prayer, asking Hashem to help us. We need his help. Here he's saying that how do we reveal this love? Through meditation, reflection. So which one is it? The answer is, you're both right. You need all of the above. You need prayer. Because even though it seems to be doable, something that we just reveal, something that's there, we're not asking Hashem. It's not like the love of pleasure, which is a gift. So that, you can understand why you have to pray. You have to ask Hashem. Why should, you know, you can't demand it. You can only ask. But here, this is something that's doable. Every one of us has this inherent love. We just have to reveal it. So why do we have to ask? But nevertheless, we ask Hashem to help us because we need all the help we can get. (laughs) Even to do the doable, to reveal this godly love, with everything, the world that we live in and everything that's surrounding us, we're constantly distracted. And just to be able to focus and to concentrate and just to be able to do what we need to do in order to get to that love. We need the help, all the help we can get. So we're not embarrassed, we're not shy. We ask Hashem, because prayer is to pray for any need that we have. So if this becomes a need for us, that I'm hungry for godliness and I'm, I need this connection, and they want to feel this connection, and they want to live this connection, that becomes a personal need for us. So if it becomes a personal need for us, then we're obligated to pray.
And Hashem could help us. Hashem could answer our prayers and help us and facilitate it and fast forward it and make it easier and make it simpler and more doable and more achievable and greater results and better results. So whatever we do, we pray, even if it's a natural thing. We turn to Hashem and say, listen, we're doing our part, but we need your help. We need you to help us along. So since this, as a result of the meditation, once I realize that this is something that I need and this is something that I want, then it's only natural that I should pray. I should pray to Hashem, please Hashem, this is a need that I have. This is my need. You pray for things that I want. That's what prayer is. Things that I am lacking. Things that I need. A person prays for health. A person prays for parnasa to make a good living. I need it. I have to pay my bills. I need so I, anything that you need. So once it becomes a need and a want, once you meditate and reflect and you realize that this is something that I need and this is something that I want, then, then I have a mitzvah to pray for it. And I believe in the power of prayer. Prayer works for everything. But before I meditated, maybe it's not a need. A real prayer means I'm re- I really need something. And I'm turning to Hashem to help me. So maybe before I meditated and reflected, it's not a real need. I can mouth the words and say, you know, but you know, we say it every morning. Uh, you know, illuminate my heart. And, but if I don't mean it, I'm just saying it because it's part of the prayer, the order, the nusach of the prayer, the language of the prayer, then it's not real. Here we're talking about it's a real need. I'm praying, just like I pray for my health, my personal health, and just like I pray to earn a good living, and I pray for anything else that I need in my life. It's a real need, and I pour my heart out, and I say, Hashem, please, help me. I need this. So real prayer is if you really mean it. You're sincere, you really mean it, you need it. So a person is praying for spirituality. How many people can honestly say that they're praying for spirituality? As much as they pray for their health and for their, for, to have a good living. That's bothering you? That's bugging you? Yeah, God forbid a person has a health challenge. Yes, that's bugging you. That's, that's, you need it. A person has a challenge in, in making a good living. <laughs> yeah. That's a sincere prayer. There's no question about it. But the question, the request for spirituality that we have in our prayer, is that for real? I mean, do you really, is that really bugging you? Is that really bothering you? That you don't feel a love for Hashem? That you don't feel godly? You don't feel a sensitivity to godliness? And you don't feel a yearning and a hunger for godliness? Is that really bothering you? Is that something you're missing in life? So in order that it should be a real prayer, first you've got to meditate and reflect. And a real reflection, as he says, constantly. Think about it, focus on it, and concentrate until it becomes a reality to you. And as a consequence, you feel this hunger. Once you feel this hunger and this need, now you're praying for real. This is a real prayer. And Hashem responds to real prayers. If you have a need, then you're asking Hashem. Hashem is always there to help. Do you make a few prayers as you go along, or are there prayers to Well, the prayers, yes, the prayers were written, the Shmonesere, and the prayers in general were written by divine inspiration. And it includes everything that we could ask for individually as well as collectively. Now, a person could pray 
if you feel that the words are not adequate or doesn't adequately describe what you need, you can always add in your own words and pray for the things that you need. Initially, prayer was in your own words. Before the rabbis of the great assembly created the structure, everyone, every Jew prayed, but they prayed in their own words, in their own way, in their own words. So originally that was what prayer... But the rabbis made a language that incorporates everything, all our personal needs, collective needs. And if you understand what you're praying, you understand, you find the words that, that address and are talking to the things that you really need, talking to your situation. And you, you pour your heart out and you pray sincerely. But if you want to pray for more things, you feel it doesn't cover, of course, there are parts in the prayer where you can add, even in the Shemonesra, in the middle of Shemakelena, you can add things that if you feel that you need, and it's not in the part of the Nusach, it's not part of the tradition, then, of the, then you can add, of course. You're speaking to Hashem. Prayer is a personal dialogue in you and God. It's a personal audience, private audience. You're speaking to the King of Kings. You have a per- private audience. You can say whatever you need and say whatever you want and whatever you, whatever, whatever you need. But, but it has to be genuine. You're standing in front of the king of kings. You have a private audience. You're looking at him. He's looking at you. Just you and the king. And He can grant you all you wish, but it has to be a sincere prayer. You have to mean it. So for someone to sincerely pray for, for spirituality... How is, that, how is that possible? After you finish reflecting and meditating and concentrating and realizing and being aware until it develops a thirst and a hunger for godliness. Once you have a thirst and a hunger, just like you have a physical thirst and a physical hunger. Can you imagine if you had no water and had no food, how hungry and thirsty you would be? It would be a pang. You would feel it physically. So imagine you develop a hunger and a thirst for godliness. It's almost like a physical hunger pain. You feel parched. I need it. My life depends on it. I need a little Torah. I need a little mitzvot. I need a little spirituality. I need a little godliness. I need something divine in my life. And then you pray to Hashem. It's a real need in your life. Then, it, then it's a genuine prayer. So it's prayer. It's meditation. And of course, to facilitate it and fast forward the whole process, it's tzedakah. By giving tzedakah, that empowers the escape. That turns it into a reality. So it's all three. And what are you praying to Hashem? Praying to Hashem that He should help reveal this love and liberate it from His concealment. Continues that. So that the heart be filled with it alone, so that its rival wife, i.e. mundane desires, will not enter its house, i.e. our hearts. Rather, this yearning and love should be the sole mistress of the house, to rule over her rival wife, and to expel her at least from one's thought, speech, and act. And that's why we need Hashem's help, because you can't get rid of it. The urge and the attraction and the pull of materialism, you can't get rid of it's not in our control. We don't control it. We're human. That's how God created us. We have a natural soul, an ego soul. It feels very natural to us. It feels very comfortable. Junk food, junk lifestyle, this is all... It's a very powerful urge, a powerful attraction. We can't pretend otherwise. 
And we're not delusional. We know that this is, this is very much a part of us. And it'll always come back. It's a force. It's a power in our lives. And you can't lower your guard because it's always there. It's right there. It's always there. Waiting to come back and to tempt us. Because it always speaks to us. Whatever shape or form, money, power, fame, indulgence, pleasure, material, to live just for the sake of living, to continue your existence, self-preservation, and just to eat and drink and be merry, enjoy life, that always speaks to us. And without a struggle, you don't have to struggle for that. Everyone is born, 7 billion people, everyone is born naturally with an ego. No one has to go to school to learn to be selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, eat, fresh, enjoy life, indulge, have fun. Just live and exist and enjoy. That comes natural. And that always remains with us. You have to learn, you have to educate yourself, you have to grow up, you have to mature, to realize that there's a why and there's a purpose, and why am I here, and what's my mission, and what's my goal, and what's the purpose of it all. The answer, existence itself, is not a point, just to exist. That's what distinguishes us from animals. Animals just exist. That's why it's called the animal soul within us. The animal within us just wants to exist. We share DNA, what, 95% with some animals or higher? We have an animal soul just wants to eat, live, drink, marry, exist, have fun, party. And that's it. Money, power, fame. And that's what life is all about. Continuing my existence. My legacies and my fame and my name and my reputation. That's what, that's what life is all about. There's no, nothing higher. There's nothing greater. There's no higher purpose. There's no higher goal. There's no... But, but a person who's educated, a person who learns and is aware and educates himself and thinks about it, you realize that's not life. You have to answer the question of why. Why do I exist? It has to be a purpose, a reason. Why do we come and go? We come and then we go, we live, we die, we're born. It has to be a purpose to this whole drama of life. That's a higher purpose. The godly soul, that's the quest of the godly soul. Find my purpose, my connection. What's it all about? This is, what, this is where I truly come to life. This is where life really begins. When you come alive, when you're connected to the source of life, when you realize that there's a God in this world and there's a purpose in this world and every one of us has a mission and a purpose, why we're here. And it's only when you answer that question and you live with that question 24-7, why am I here? I'm not just here just to continue my existence, to eat for the sake of eating, to indulge for the sake of indulgence, just to continue my existence. That, that's animalistic, that's brutish. That's, then life is brutish and nasty, but there's a higher purpose. Then life becomes noble, life becomes meaningful, life becomes godly, life becomes real. But that's something that takes education. It doesn't come naturally. It only starts when we're bar mitzvah and bas mitzvah, when we reach puberty, when we reach maturity, which is a reflection of what's going on in the inside. That's when our godly soul makes its grand appearance, you know, 13 years late or 12 years late, but finally it shows up, <laughs> comes around. 
And that's when our mind starts working. When animals reach puberty, the life is over. There's no more surprises. But when a human being reaches puberty, hopefully your mind opens up. You start thinking. You start asking the big questions. Why am I here? How do I fit in? What's the bigger picture? What's it all about? And that becomes a lifelong quest till 120. 24-7. I, that's how I plug in. But it's a constant struggle. It's not that the natural soul goes anywhere. Just to surrender and drunk food and drunk lifestyle and just live and eat and have fun and party and become mindless and just continue my existence. and It's all about legacies and, and, and power and, 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 and making it to the Forbes 400 list. And, 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 you know, in reality, who cares? You know, no one remembers the Bill Gates of 100 years ago. Who cares? It's completely irrelevant and significant. It means absolutely nothing in the scheme of things. But we get so distracted, we get so caught up, and that's natural. You don't have to struggle. To be egotistical, to be an egomaniac, you don't have to struggle. It's the most natural thing in the world. To be godly, to be good, to be genuine, to be deep, sincere, honest, that takes work, that takes effort, that takes awareness. To be disciplined, to eat wholesome, to live a wholesome life, that takes work, that takes awareness, that takes tremendous discipline, awareness, realization, focus, concentration. So it's a constant struggle. It's not that one day you reach a point and this, you, you're no longer struggling. No, till 120, till your last breath, you'll be struggling. Because it's so much easier just to surrender. The path of least resistance. Follow the easy way. So we need help. We ask Hashem, please help us. It's a constant struggle. Help us ensure that the godly soul is primary. Instead of being imprisoned, kidnapped, imprisoned, held hostage, the godly soul should rule. The godly soul should be in charge. And it's the klippa, the animal soul that should be in exile. It's there, but you lock it up. <laughs> you know, you lock up the, the, the crazy relative. You lock, <laughs> you lock up in the room. <laughs> you know, lock her up, the key, throw away the key, lock it up. But you should be in charge. <laughs> you know, the godly soul should be in charge. But you need help. You need, it's a constant struggle. And it's very weird, you know, you can... Every day, day in, day out, you have to re-inspire yourself and reawaken and re-renew that commitment and renew that dedication and renew that devotion. And you have to, again, you have to think about it again and realize it again and, 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 and experience it again and make that resolve again. And to strengthen yourself, you need strength, you need courage, you need strength, you need energy. You need. So you're asking Hashem to please help me. And we need all that help. One cannot expel her altogether from one's heart so that it should harbor no foreign desires at all. For we are speaking here of the love possessed by the Bainini, an individual who is unable to banish foreign desires from his heart. He is only able to ensure that they find no expression in his thought, speech, or his actions, as explained in Tanya chapter 12. Part 1, chapter 12, you can't, you can't uh, change 
your core. You can't change your subconscious. We're not the tzaddik. One in a million that Hashem gave the ability they can completely transform the subconscious. They're no longer tempted. They no longer have any temptations, physical temptations. They've transformed themselves. We don't have that power. So that ego and that urge is there. It's very there, very strong. We can put it to bed. We can anesthetize it. We can control it. We can, but it takes strength, constant strength. And vigilance. There are people who are recovering alcoholics for 20 years. They're still struggling. Just because for 20 years you've been sober doesn't mean that the struggle is no longer there. They'll be struggling for the rest of their life. It's a struggle. You can't, you can't uh, pretend that the ego is gone. The enemy is gone. You can lower your vigilance. You can't lower your vigilance for a moment. You can't lower your guard for a moment. The enemy is at the door. The enemy is in the house. <laughs> can't get rid of it. I can't completely send it away. It's here. It's inside me. It's part of me. An essential part of me. It's my natural, natural self. Ego. It's the most natural thing in the world. So to be able to live with a sense of purpose and a sense of mission, that, it's not, it doesn't come natural. It's... it's, it's struggle but we ask Hashem that at least we should be able to kick it out put it in the shed or keep it out that it can't control my behavior that I, sh- I shouldn't succumb if last week he said if you empty your mind and good things will happen how do you keep the kalipa out while your mind is empty on the contrary when you're emptying you're just creating a space, allowing your neshama to emerge. You're getting out of your ego. You know, your ego is constant. And sometimes it's hard for us to realize that we're not our egos, that we have a neshama and there's much more to us. So sometimes you just got to stop the merry-go-round and just step back and and um, realize that there's so much more to us than just, it's just our superficial self. To realize that the ego is just our superficial self and that there's so much more to us, so much depth, so much infinite depth, that you have to stop. That's what Shabbat is. Every week a Jew steps off the merry-go-round. We step back. We're not spinning. All week we're spinning. And when you're spinning, and six days a week you're working and you're immersed, you know, you don't, you don't, you can't even catch your breath. You don't even have, you're too immersed. You know, when you have your nose in the chicken soup, it's hard to smell the soup. You got to step back. You got to step out. Shabbos, you step back. You get off the merry-go-round. And then you realize ego, there's so much more to life than just ego. Ego is just our superficial self. There's, there's so much depth to us. It's a godly soul. So you create that space that allows your neshama to emerge and to speak to us in its own language, its own beautiful language. So you, you're just creating the space to allow it to... Like he said here, first you've got to get rid of the negative behavior. You get rid of the negative behavior, you create a space. Then you allow... Then when you meditate and you reflect, and you created the space that allowed the neshama to emerge. And um, 
And even with all of that, we're praying, we need Hashem's, we need prayers, we need Hashem's help that this project should be successful because it's not guaranteed. And there's pitfalls every, every, every step of the way because you can't, you can't completely get rid of this, this other, um, as he calls the rival wife. It's my wife, it's me, it's who I am, it's my natural self. Ego is the most natural thing in the world. And it's so easy to succumb. It's so easy to revert. It feels so natural. It feels so good. It's difficult to constantly struggle and constantly, you know, do the right thing. And it's so much easier to succumb, especially a society that encourages it, that is proud and celebrates succumbing to your lowest self, to the most degrading self, to your most lowest, who's forever going down uh, further and further, lower and lower, degrading and downgrading and dumbing down and finding society's lowest common denominator. And we're just, we're just waiting to see where the next low is. What, what, what are they going to come up with next? But this is, this is a way of life. So when you're living in a world which celebrates degradation and celebrates the succumbing and surrendering and actually makes it illegal to struggle. Anyone who encourages a person to struggle with his negative behaviors, now it's almost becoming illegal. They're trying to make it illegal to help someone psychologically overcome his struggles. Could you imagine how low society has become? We're exploring new depths of depravity where it's actually becoming illegal to help someone overcome his struggle. And this is called progress. This is regress. We're going back to the cave age. We're going back to the dark ages. So when you live in such a world, in such a society, in such an environment, to live a life of struggle, of honor, of dignity, of of genuineness, of morality and ethics and goodness and genuine kindness and truth and purpose and divine life, a wholesome life, a good life, a decent life, it's, you have to pray to Hashem. You need all the help you can get. Don't take it for granted for a moment. She should at least be hidden in a state of exile and servitude to the mistress of the house, that is, to the love for God, who will make use of her for her own essentials only, such as eating and drinking. So here he's saying something very, very important. You can't get rid of her. She's the other wife, the rival wife. It's there. And she serves a purpose. Because a person does have to survive. You're human. So you have to eat, and you have to sleep, and you have to get married, and you have to do business. So, this is all part of reality, of real life. And you need that energy, that impulse. It says the rabbis of the great assembly, they prayed to God, and they killed the evil inclination for idolatry. And they were successful. 
when they saw that the going is good, they decided, you know, let's go for broke. They decided to kill the evil inclination for sexuality. The urge, powerful urge for sexuality, which drives the whole world mad. And they succeeded. The next morning they went to the marketplace, they couldn't find any eggs, they couldn't find any... uh, The world world came to an end. You know, if you don't have all these natural drives, these natural hungers and desires, then the world will come to an end. So they prayed and they restored back this urge and this powerful urge. So the answer is not to destroy the Yetzirah, not to destroy the Klippa, because it's not, A, it's not possible, and B, the Klippa serves a purpose. It's called a shell. Klippa means a shell. Shell serves a purpose. In order to have a fruit, I need a shell. The fruit cannot grow unless you have a shell. The shell protects it. The shell allows it to grow. If there was no ego, no business would get done. There would be no motivation, no ambition, no drive. No one would get married. There would be no business. There would be no children. There would be no world. So it serves a tremendous purpose. Hashem needs a world. He wants a world. So he needs human beings. Human beings who do business, who eat and drink and live. And at the same time, they have the clarity that this is just a shell. It's a means to an end. You have clarity. What's the end and what's the means? There is an end. There's an inner purpose. There's a meaning. There's an inner purpose. There's a divine goal and theme. And that's the fruit. And that's the real connection. But in or- then there's a means to an end. In order to fulfill that purpose, I need a healthy container. I need a body that's healthy, that exercises, that eats, that has relationships, that, that, that's real. That, so I need, I need all of these things. But then everything is in the right proportion. Everything is in the proper place. Then it's healthy and wholesome. It's when a person throws out the fruit and discards the fruit and eats the shell, that gives you a stomachache. Then you have a problem. But if you have the shell and, the, the, and you realize the main thing is the fruit and you use the shell, use it. In other words, there's nothing wrong with the shell. There's nothing wrong with money, for example. The ultimate shell. As the Alter Rebbe says, when the rabbis uh, destroy the evil inclination for idolatry, they exchange it for the inclination for money. And the Alter Rebbe says, I'm not sure if they did a wise thing because I don't know which is worse. Idolatry, at least you're worshipping something. Money, you're worshipping yourself. You know, people will do anything for money. So what happens is, people love money and use people. Look at all these, when, when corporations, when it becomes greedy to an extreme, and all they care about is greed, and they're selling poison and selling garbage and harming their own clients. Um, what did they, what did that, was it Goldman Sachs in the congressional hearings? They admitted that they're selling junk to their own clients or paying them, paying them to look out for their interest and selling them junk because they want to make money. You know, this is, you want to do business? Fine. You want to earn a nice living? You're entitled. 
But where's honesty, morality, ethics? Money is a means to an end. Money is a wonderful thing. As long as you love people and use money. That's what money is there for. Money is there to use. But what do you love? People. What do you use the money for? For people. To better their lives. To help people. To help your life. Your family. But it's not an end in itself. When money becomes an end in itself, then you start using people and loving money. And you become corrupt. And you become evil. You become twisted. Distorted. Then it becomes completely unhealthy. Then it becomes egregious. Torah is nothing against capitalism. Money, private property, absolutely. If you take someone's private property, you're a thief. Person is motivated. Person is motivated to do business. But as long as everything is in the right proportion. When the corporation becomes an end in itself, and it's all about making money, and we don't care who gets hurt in the process, if we can make an extra eighth of a dollar, and we can make an extra, extra, a billion is not enough, I need two billion, and at the expense of hurting people, and lying to people, and cheating, and selling people defective products, knowing that it's defective, selling poison, how many drugs were recalled from the market after decades, when science, when it became so blatantly obvious that it's poisoning people and killing people, but they knew it in the research, they knew it. And they sold it anyway because they couldn't care less. This is evil, this is egregious, this is, this is capitalism run amok, this is, this is absolute evil. Because when you love money and you, and you use people, something is wrong. We're not here to get rid of money, we're not here to get rid of capitalism. We have nothing against the 1%. We're not anti-capitalists. We're not communists or socialists. But everything has to be in the right proportion. You have to love people and use money. Then you use the money in a kosher way. You make the money in a kosher way, in a healthy way. You, you build products that really help people instead of selling people junk food and junk lifestyle. You sell people things that are wholesome, things that are good, and you're entitled to make a good living. Why not? No one, no one begrudges you. We're not communists and we're not socialists. No one begrudges you to make a good and honest living. You earned it. You deserved it. You're providing a service. You're giving a good product. You're upfront. You're honest. Everything is up, up and up. Everything is... Then what's the problem? But when it becomes greedy and it becomes... Instead of loving people and using money, you start using people and loving money. That, then it becomes evil. That's what he says. You can't get rid of it. Not, and the point is not to get rid of it. We're not trying to get rid of money. We're not trying to get rid of business. We're not trying to get rid of capitalism. We're not trying to get rid of, rid of this world. It's just using it. Use it. You be in control. Use it properly. Eat. Eat properly. Drink. Drink properly. Do business. But do business properly. With this, for the sake of heaven. Inject a divine purpose, a divine godly purpose. I have a mission. God's ambassador. And eating and drinking and doing business is part of my mission in life. But that means eating in a kosher way and drinking in a kosher way and doing business in a kosher, honest way.
in a morally ethical way. So that's what he says. You have to use it. You have to use this rival wife. Not, not expel her and banish her and pretend she doesn't exist. That's foolish. It's not real. No wonder why communism, all these falsisms, collapsed in its own way. Because it's not real. Riling against the 1%, that's the answer. Creating tensions and, and rivalry and rearranging the deck on the Titanic. And we saw what happened when, the, com- when the, the communists took over, the government took over. They became the billionaires and they, became, and they were corrupt. So what, what, you haven't changed anything. It's like the old joke. You know, the person comes home. I'm sure he's all excited. He tells his wife. At uh, the news that they just, there was a town on the border between Ukraine and Poland and Russia, and every few years it was changing countries, nationalities. Once it was under Ukraine, then it was under Poland, then it was under Russia. And he comes home, his wife's all excited that this town that we live in now is no longer part of Russia, now it's part of Ukraine. His wife says, ah, wonderful, we'll never have to suffer through another Russian winter ever again. (laughs) You know, you, you, that's external, so officially you haven't changed anything. There's no core change, no internal change. If you want to change this world, you have to be a, an internal change, a core change. A person has to change. A person has to be moral, ethical, spiritual, genuine, godly, good, kind. And it only comes through effort. This doesn't come through, it doesn't come automatically. You have to work on yourself, you have to pray, you have to give tzedakah, you have to discipline yourself, you have to act in a godly way, think, speak, and act and in, 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 in a good way, in a godly way. And then you have to meditate and reflect, and you have to pray, and ask Hashem that to allow that the godly soul should dominate, the godly soul should prevail, the godly soul should run, should be in charge, and then the rival wife will work for the godly soul will be an exile for the godly soul. will be an exile in the godly soul. You know, and that's a good place to be. When the ego is an exile to the godly soul and is subjugated to the godly soul, it's a wonderful place to be. Because then it utilizes its energy in a wholesome way. You're eating, but it's wholesome. You're drinking, but it's wholesome. You're doing business, but it's wholesome. You're being intimate, in relationship, but it's wholesome. Everything is wholesome. When that becoming monks or nuns or escaping or divorcing ourselves or running away. No, we're dealing. But everything falls into its proper place. It's right right proportion. The shell is the shell and the fruit is the fruit. We love people and we use money. Then this world becomes a garden of Eden. That's how we change the world. That's how we make the world a better not through this false, you know, all these false isms, fighting against the 1%, communism, socialism, this is, this is all artificial and false, and it just exacerbates the conflict. It doesn't heal, it doesn't cure, it doesn't do anything. Um, so that's what he says, to utilize, to utilize it, but only things that are necessary. Or I eat, but I'm going to eat healthy, I'm going to eat wholesome because I'm eating for a purpose. Everything that I do is here for a purpose, a higher purpose. I'm eating in order that I should have the strength, in order that I should serve Hashem. I'm doing business in order that I should have a higher purpose. I should be able to serve Hashem. 
and therefore I do business properly, honestly. And I use my money to help people. I use my abilities to help people, to bring good things into this world. I'm selling them something real. There's nothing fake. There's nothing artificial. There's no, no lies, no money. Profit doesn't become the end of all, the end all. A decent living, yes. Entitled, 100%. And you can make a beautiful living. You become very, very, very rich also. But I'm giving people an honest service. I'm really helping, improving, I'm bringing something to the table that's really genuine and honest. The American economy collapsed in 2008. It was a moral collapse. Because everyone was being dishonest. The banks were selling mortgages, giving mortgages to people they knew could never pay. And they were selling it to investors and packaging it and repackaging it. It was, it was, uh, it was one, it was just a pyramid. It was just a scheme. It was a... And no one cared. Everyone was passing the buck to someone else. So, you know, as long as I'm making my commission. It was a breakdown, a complete breakdown of morality, of trust. And the answer is not by throwing more money or spending more money or creating the largest deficits than all the previous presidents combined. That's not the answer. The answer is becoming a little more genuine inside. Becoming a little more moral and ethical and truthful inside. A little more humble, a little more godly, a little more connected. If the godly souls to remain within the body and thereby be able to fulfill the requirements of the Torah and its mitzvot, the individual must eat and drink you should therefore use the animal soul's natural desire for physical things expressly for the spiritual purposes of the godly soul. Thus, for example, his food and drink are intended to provide him with strength so that he will be able to study the Torah, engage in divine service, and the like. Your ways clearly speaks of man's corporeal activities, yet even in these we are commanded to know him to bind oneself to God through these physical actions by utilizing them for the purposes designated by him in order thereby to know. Right, that's what it says. King Solomon writes, in all your ways you should know God. Your ways meaning your natural ways, your hungers, your physical hungers, your physical desires. Don't suppress it. Don't destroy it. It's your ways. You're hungry. You're physically hungry. You're physically thirsty. You physically have urges and instincts. Don't suppress it, but utilize it. Utilize it properly. In all your ways, you should know Hashem. In other words, it remains your ways. We're not talking about studying Torah and doing mitzvot. That's obviously divine. Or doing someone a favor, or tzedakah. That's obviously you're doing something divine. We're talking about as you go about your own ways, your personal ways. You're doing business, you're eating, you're drinking, your relationships, your own personal life. And within your personal life, within your personal ways, you should know God. So that means harnessing, utilizing the, these natural urges and instincts, but utilizing it for a higher purpose. That the godly soul should prevail and utilize it for a higher purpose. Obviously, to be able to maintain this dynamic, you need Hashem's help. You need a lot of help. Yep, we're praying to Hashem to please help us succeed. Because it's not like you can banish 
We're not talking about banishing. And it's not the ideal. It's not the purpose. The ideal is completely incorporating it, that the shell should work in harmony with the fruit and, and everything should be in the right balance and the fruit should be primary, the godly soul should be primary, the purpose, and then all our natural urges and instincts should be a means to an end. That takes tremendous, uh, you know, it's a very fragile balance. You have to, you need constant help of Hashem that, that this arrangement should succeed and work out. Because don't forget, the other wife is always plotting and scheming to overthrow you. <laughs> it's not happy being in the, uh, you know, in that position. It would like to prevail and be predominant. And in a second, in a heartbeat, we can just slide back. People who are recovering alcoholics after 20 years can fall off the wagon in a heartbeat, 20 years later. After 20 years of being sober, in a heartbeat, they can fall off the wagon. Because it's, it's, it's so natural that it's so easy just to revert back to our, our natural self. So it's a constant dynamic, it's a constant energy, it's a constant awareness, constant discipline, constant struggle. So we ask, we ask Hashem's help. And this is the answer to the question that he asked in the beginning of the letter. He started out the letter with a verse of King Solomon in the Song of Songs. How beautiful and how sweet is your love of pleasure. So he's saying that this only refers to the love of pleasure, the first level of love. You'll be able to go back and hear the first part of the letter which describes the love of pleasure versus this love that we describe today, which is the love of yearning. That which type of love could you say how beautiful and how sweet? It's only the first type of love, which is the love of pleasure, because it's so revealed. It's only when you're in the presence of Hashem and you're already connected with Hashem, you're already one with Hashem, then you can say how beautiful and how sweet. With the second level of love, you can't say, even though it's innate and born inherent, you can't say how beautiful and how sweet, because it's a struggle. It's, we're distant, we're yearning, we're hungry, we're thirsting, we, we, we desire, we're praying, we're working so hard. It's not so obvious. You can't say how beautiful and how sweet. It's not so beautiful and how sweet, because we're, it's something we're aspiring to. It's only when you've arrived when you've already accomplished, you've already achieved it, then you can say, ah, how beautiful and how sweet. You can savor the victory. You're there, you're present, you have Hashem, you feel in the presence of Hashem, it's a gift. Then you can say, how beautiful and how sweet. But when you're in the middle of the struggle and this distance and you're aspiring and you're yearning and you're hungry and, um, and there's no room for complacency. Because the moment you become complacent, you're lost. Yeah, you, 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 you lost the battle. So you have to constantly be an edge and constantly... So you can't say how beautiful and how sweet. It's a, it's a struggle. It's hidden. It's concealed. You have to constantly bring it out into the open, constantly fan the flames. You have to constantly create that hunger, and that fire, and that passion, and that yearning, and that desire. That why that's what he says. My office and my how beautiful and how sweet. Ava the higher level of love, the love of pleasure, versus this love, which is the love of fire, the love of yearning. And but both of these are a revelation of godliness that our souls experience as a result of the tzedakah that we give and in general the Torah mitzvah that we do. So we get a sense of the divinity of the mitzvah, 
we have some revelation in our soul today, in the here and now, of the divinity, the essential divinity of the mitzvah. Either the higher level of love, which is a reflection of the divinity of the mitzvah that will be revealed in the world of resurrection, or a reflection of what the soul experiences in the Garden of Eden, which is still within the framework of Hashem fills all the worlds, a little reflection, a little taste of that godliness is the sense of yearning for godliness, the sense of thirsting for godliness. So this is like a little taste, a little reward, a little taste of the reflection of the divinity of the mitzvah. That we're not just doing something mechanical, we're doing something that's essentially godly and divine. We're touching the divine every time we do a mitzvah, all 613 mitzvahs, any of the 613 mitzvahs, we're touching the divine, and we get a little reflection, a little taste, a little reflection of that in our soul when we experience this love for Hashem, this yearning for Hashem. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.